Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gospel Tech Podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping us love God and use tech. Uh, my name is Nathan Sutherland, and I'm excited to be here with you today. As you know, we have started a mini-series titled just The Gospel Filter, and what we are trying to do is take the gospel part of gospel tech and really flesh that out. What does it look like to believe the gospel? And if we believe it, how should that change our tech lives? So, uh, very excited to be going into this and kind of be talking a little bit about what what practically does this look like? So we're not just talking about kind of like specific to-dos, like how can we work with a smartphone or how do we make our smartphone into a dumb phone? Like those are all awesome, but I did want to make this kind of like a little mini series to help us with that. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, the introduction to the gospel and a little bit of history, got to nerd out for a little bit, um, about the Peloponnesians invading Greece and this idea of good news about gospel and evangelists who take that gospel and, and the myth of legend of Marathon and kind of where, where we are with that. So today we're specifically talking about um, how does the gospel stop us from being arrogant? Because it will. So the gospel filter eliminates arrogance is the way we're saying it. it. It cannot exist in the same room as the gospel. That is not to say if you've ever been arrogant or prideful that you aren't a believer. It means in that moment you weren't believing, and that is Jesus's work, is to point out our areas where we lack faith so that we can give that to Jesus and he can give us back more of what we don't deserve, which is more grace to believe more, right? So that is that is kind of this walk. Uh, for many of us in our culture, we admire arrogance and pride and kind of this idea of, of swagger more than hate it, right? We, we see people who have this arrogant, confident nature as being kind of independent-minded and being excellent and praiseworthy, and often that's actually how they see themselves. But let's be really clear, like in our conversation today, arrogance is not a trait of the Holy Spirit. God is not arrogant. Therefore, someone who believes in the gospel cannot be arrogant, okay? That's that's the trajectory that we're taking this conversation, and we'll cover it in three ways. We are going to look at how the gospel eliminates arrogance because it, one, proves we need a Savior, two, demands faith in action, and three, clearly defines the difference between conviction and condemnation. I know that sounds like a lot, and it is, so we're going to get this conversation started right now. Welcome to the Gospel Tech Podcast, a resource for parents who are feeling outpaced and overwhelmed as they raise children in a tech world. As an educator, parent, and tech user, I want to equip parents with the tools, resources, and confidence they need to raise kids who love God and use tech. Okay, we are going to begin this conversation on how the gospel eliminates arrogance. But first, I wanted to cover just some brief housekeeping. I wanted to say thank you to all of our listeners, people who are rating and reviewing this podcast specifically, uh, people who are taking time. If you have not yet, you can go right on to iTunes or to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever wherever you're finding this podcast, uh, and you can leave us a review. It helps us. It also helps people find us. Uh, so it lets us know what we're doing well or where we're struggling. Uh, it also lets other people know what is this podcast about? What, what's its focus? Because there's so much information out there and there's not really anything like gospel tech, uh, right? This kind of mashup between like we're taking the gospel and the good news we have, and we're also going to talk like Dave Ramsey style. How do we apply that, right? So I guess it's like 
gospel and tech and Dave Ramsey accountability uh, with our with our resources we've been gifted. But that doesn't sound very good. It doesn't it doesn't pitch well. So uh, your reviews help. Also wanted to thank everyone who's been just reaching out. If you have any questions or you want more resources, go to flintandiron.org. Under parent resources, uh, we're posting more blogs and uh, just kind of information to help you kind of digest what you're hearing here uh, on social media. So at Flint and Iron, you can find us on Instagram or on Facebook at Sparking Purpose. And we post there uh, every workday, so Monday through Friday. Uh, and just kind of encouragements, reminders, and, and extending this conversation. That's also where you can direct message us. So if you have a question or you have a comment or you want to kind of figure out how does this apply to your family or is this a situation that this would matter, uh, a lot of people asking for friends on there, which is great. Uh, that's really the conversation because, A, if it really is for a friend, you are an amazing resource to that person and you can bring it up much better than I could because you know their life and you have the relationship. And if it's not for a friend, it's a safe spot to ask as though it were. And who am I? I can't figure that out. So feel free to do that. Uh, so please do go do that. Um, review, engage us on social media and be a part of this conversation. So thank you for being here. Uh, last week, I shared a fun fact uh, because that's what I'm doing on my own now. Uh, so fun fact is was last time that I had four sisters. Uh, second fun fact is that we grew up for almost all of my uh, at-home childhood, so kind of 8 to 18, without an actual functioning television. So we had like a, a screen that plugged into a wall, but there was no like cable, there was no local television, both, so because of where we lived, antenna didn't work, and my parents were like, man, we got cable, and there was a lot of filth on there, <laughs> we don't need that in our lives, which was pretty monumental at the time, but now almost all of us live this way, right? Like we have phones that most of us use for our entertainment or, or devices that connect to our TVs. And so most of what we view is on demand. Like I want to watch a show. I'm going to go watch the show on my time when I want to. I'll pause it if I feel like it. And right, I can watch 20 minutes of a show with my wife and then walk away. Uh, but at the time that was a, it was a big deal. Uh, it meant that I watched a lot of like focus on the family movies. So Five Mile Creek, shout out here. Uh, I did play video games. If you've heard any of my kind of testimony and story, video games are a big part of my life and upbringing, not because my parents liked them or even approved of them, uh, but they I, I made sure the games fit within their uh, expectations for our household. Huh. And I just, sorry, I just remembered the couple times when I didn't. <laughs> There's another story. Maybe that'll be uh, next time's fun fact, but... Uh, I fit it within and then and then played video games, but we did not have like regular television time. And what was cool about that was we had to find other ways to stay busy. So my parents really dedicated uh, themselves and and intentional family resources to finding us other things. So I played multiple sports, not because I'm awesome, uh, but because I had to be doing something because I'm a high energy person and I needed to be tired when I got home. Uh, I was in choir. I was in school musicals. I was like doing anything, right? I, I even tried to play an instrument. Uh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Zimmerman for that. Uh, I did attempt piano and at one point saxophone. It didn't end well for me in my musical career, but the point was there were attempts made. I grew through failure and it was important. So uh, just kind of a, it's a fun fact. I know this has then impacted my adulthood because I don't have a history of like, well, TV is just on when you're doing A, B, and C. Uh, it also means that, so I don't have the history of it, which means there aren't just like those times, well, this is a normal time for a TV to be on. Like, I don't have any of that. So I don't have like, well, it's evening. This is just when TV time is. Like, that's not built into me. I don't have an urge to watch television in evenings. I It's not satisfying to me. I don't enjoy that. 
I did have a huge urge to play video games in evenings, which again is part of my testimony and why I'm speaking to you now. That was not healthy for me. Nothing against video games per se, but they were causing problems in my life. Uh, So fun fact, when we go into that was the fun fact. This is no longer fun fact. We're going to jump in. Uh, we're going to review last week. Last week, we talked about the gospel filter, and we talked about how there's good news and how that good news changes our behavior. Okay, So we don't operate out of fear anymore. When The good news of the gospels, when we are told, hey, you are a sinner, the good news is that you've been set free in Jesus And because of that, you now live in that freedom. The victory is won. This isn't, hey, there's a really good army out there. And if you are in their favor, they might come help you, but maybe not, right? Like that's not the way this works. The gospel is the good news that that Jesus came. He died the death that you and I deserved. He was raised to new life. And then he extends that life to us as grace. And we talked about the difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is you're forgiven the stuff you deserve, the bad stuff. Grace is you're given stuff you don't deserve. And that's where we are. So this week, we're going to talk about the gospel eliminates arrogance. The gospel eliminates arrogance for three reasons. It proves we need a savior it demands faith and action, and then it clearly sets a defining line between conviction and condemnation. And this, if you remember what we said last week, I was going to be like, oh, these are great. They're going to be like 25-minute episodes. Um, I, we're already eight minutes in, and that's probably not going to happen. So just heads up. I, I hope this is helpful for you, but I don't want to rush it. So with that being said, let's get started. All right. So we know that uh, we're talking about how it eliminates arrogance, but the definition of arrogance, let's start there. So to be clear, arrogance is the attitude or belief of an individual that they're more important than the others around them. Uh, remember that old saying, it's not bragging if it's true. So there are some people like, well, man, God's the most arrogant being on the planet or in the universe or whatever they would want to state. Uh, and and you can follow the logic, right? Well, God demands praise and glory. Just read the Psalms. Like, how, how then is God not arrogant? And there is some actual truth in this, right? If I go to God and say, God, you're the best, I'm not making him feel good. I'm not like patting his pride. I'm actually speaking truth. So when God says, don't praise anything else, praise me, he is saying, if you praise anything other than the best and call it the best, you're actually lying, right? And at that point, you are showing arrogance because you believe that you know what's the best when there is only one thing that is the best, or one, in this case, being who is the best. Uh, so we do want to keep, right, if only God is good, all those other statements are then factual, and we're letting those kind of sink into our hearts. We praise and focus on God and his goodness because it is true, um, and we don't want to be liars. So when we're talking about arrogance, it's when a person who is distinctly not better than all the people around them, right? Simply from the fact that they are a person. They might be taller, prettier, better academic scores, but they are no better, and that is actually at the core of the gospel. This is why we can't have arrogance, because at the core of the gospel, we are all sinners and on the same level enemies of God and lost in the chains of our own sin that we've wrapped around ourselves. And out of that is where Jesus comes and pulls us and gives us new life. So we want to make sure that we are um, just being clear on what arrogance is, that we're all enemies of God, and and therefore one cannot be both arrogant and repentant. We cannot be fully self-reliant on our own ability and goodness and say, I'm completely lost and in need of a savior. We'd be in need of like a 
self-help guru or something, and that is not Jesus, that is not the gospel, and that is not good news. It's terrible news because that means it's up to you and I to define the value of our souls and to push forward into our own goodness, which if you've ever looked, it's not there, okay? So when we look this at this then, the gospel, the reason it eliminates arrogance is because it 1A, I'm actually going to split this in like a 1A and 1B, 1A, it proves we need a savior, okay? It proves we need a savior because I now know I'm a sinner. Um, this is pretty quick and easy. We say all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, right? I feel many times like sinners are those bad people and we see ourselves as those awesome people and we read like Old Testament. We're like, yeah, see, those are bad people. Israel's messing up here or the Pharisees are super messed up here. Um, but we misunderstand, right? In the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie tells a story about a, a man who was a, a, a serial police killer. He killed other people too, but he, he repeatedly like hunted down and killed police officers. Um, and they finally get this guy cornered in an apartment. He gets in a massive shootout with the cops uh, to the point where they, this is, I think, early 1900s, if I remember correctly. And he literally, they, the police literally mount machine guns across the street uh, in another apartment and are now firing in. And as this guy is dying from his numerous bullet wounds, he writes out uh, on a page spattered with his own blood um, that he is a victim and he's misunderstood. The people just didn't really see how great he was and they all they all just didn't like him. And really, like, they all brought this on him. And if he had really been more understood, things would have been fine. Like, this is the power of arrogance, that we can look at the consequences we've earned for ourselves by actually hunting, in this guy's case, hunting down police officers. And when those police officers come back and fight him, he says, I misunderstood this. This went badly. Um, and that I think is, is really important because it's easy then to look at him and go, man, that guy was really terrible. And that's, that's the danger of arrogance, right? Is that now the gospel goes, no, that's what you do to God every day, Nathan, right? That's what you do to God every day when you make your own choices and then go, God, why don't you love me? Things aren't working out. If you loved me, this would have been better. And you go, yeah, but remember that one time when you said, God, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do it my way. And then now you're getting this and now somehow that's God's fault, right? That's what we do all the time to God. Um, and that's not to say everything bad that happens in life is our fault, it's to say that when things go wrong because I picked it wrong, right? Because I chose me instead of God, I was arrogant, and that doesn't fit in. I'm a sinner. We don't have to look far to see this kind of thinking in our own lives. Just think about the last time you drove on the freeway and somebody cut you off. How did you feel? What thoughts immediately came to your mind? Not just the ones that left your mouth, but like what went on? If you're anything like me, the thoughts that crossed your mind, you're just an average human being right? This happens to many of us. Um, we're probably all sorts of clairvoyant insight into their parenting, their value as a citizen, the quality of their education, maybe their intellect, probably even the social status of maybe one of their parents. Um, we immediately have these thoughts about people because I was wronged and they are bad and I am awesome. Literally just a week ago, this happened to me. So I was driving uh, over a mountain pass coming from Eastern Washington to Western Washington. And I was driving behind a car who on this pass was going a full 10 miles an hour under the speed limit, which happens. People go slow on passes. They're uncomfortable. They're towing things. And so then you get to these passing lanes where a second lane opens up and I punch it to go 10 over the speed limit to try to pass this individual who then accelerates 
to 15 over the speed limit. So I have accelerated 20 miles an hour in the one area marked for passing slower cars. And the individual I'm trying to pass is now going five miles an hour faster than me, right? Which would have been awesome 30 seconds ago to just go five miles an hour faster than me, but they didn't, and now they are. And the things that came out of my mouth were probably not glorifying to God or kind to neighbor. Uh, and Anna called me on this, but in that moment, right, I was kind of lost on how wrong this person must be because I am right and they clearly are a jerk. Like in my head, that person woke up and was like, honey, I'm going to go out and drive the freeways and make sure I go 10 miles an hour and then accelerate really fast so people have to stay behind me. All right, love you. See you later. Like in my head, this was a premeditated plot this person had out to mess up my day. Odds of that being true? Probably not. In fact, they may have just been driving slow until I tried to rip past them. They went, oh man, I'm driving super slow, right? Like I had no idea I was going this speed. And then they sped up to what they normally would do. Um, <clears throat> which is why when we see the gospel, we have to actually recognize that it doesn't let us be arrogant because we are constantly giving other people grace. That person did not necessarily, uh, they did not wrong me and my anger with them was that I somehow thought I was more important. My driving is more valuable than your driving. You have no business driving around me, crazy person, um, because I have now put myself in a spot of uh, being more important than them. But the gospel proves that I am a sinner, as I am acknowledging now to you. The second part of that is not only am I a sinner, but I need a savior, right? If I'm as bad as quote unquote, those people, okay, uh, then that means that I need as much help as they do. So what separates us? There's only one thing, the blood of Christ. And it's not that I did good enough to earn it. I need a savior. Now, the story that goes with this um, is really important because without understanding what the gospel says and what Jesus says through the gospel, we're going to end up with churches that are actually not hospitals for the sick in spirit and soul. They're going to be social clubs for the uh, quote-unquote spiritually elite, right? For the well, if you will. And visitors are going to be encouraged to either add up to the standard or find some place that's a little more of their own speed. Uh, Jesus takes us on, head on, and to understand the story he uses, we need to know three groups of people. First, you got the Pharisees. So you're going to hear Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, and and the Pharisees get the brunt of it because the Pharisees were hyper-focused on following the letter of the laws as written in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, okay? So you go through the Old Testament law, and you get through like Leviticus and Numbers and those sections that we normally drop out. Go read through those, and now imagine following all all of those rules. It isn't fun. Pharisees were professional rule followers. They quit their day job and they actually went about following the law as a full-time gig. And then they also therefore became kind of the lawyers. They became the, the people, the theologians, if you will. They became the ones who knew um, the law back and forth and how best to do it. And then they decided on new rules. Um, what they didn't realize was that this was actually a point of arrogance for them. And Jesus is super clear to point it out, which we'll see here in just a minute. Second is going to be tax collectors. And I've heard a lot of explanations for tax collectors, but I really want to, I want to drive this home. Uh, 
tax collectors weren't just like people who weren't liked. I want you to imagine that a, a foreign country, any country that isn't America, has invaded your neighborhood. It's taken over America. It's invaded your neighborhood. You put up a violent opposition to this invading power. People you know were killed. People you know were killed slowly and publicly as an example for fighting this violent power that has come in and has taken over. You lost that fight. They took some houses in your neighborhood, put a bunch of troops in there, and then not only do they make all the rules and make you follow their stuff and like rip down stuff that was important to you in your neighborhood and put up stuff they want to put up, right? March troops through your neighborhood all the time. But in order to fund their conquering of the country that you love and fought and saw people die for, they actually are going to take a huge tax from you and use it to fund their world domination. Now, they're not going to come do that themselves. They have people to kill. So what they're going to do is they're going to actually get one of your neighbors. And that neighbor is going to come around and say, hey, you have to pay me the money owed this invading army. And if you don't, you're going to get killed publicly and slowly like those other people. Now, that person is a tax collector, okay? It is a local person from that community who has agreed to work with the the occupational army and to make their money doing that. That's pretty low on the, uh, on the despicable human list, right? That you're actually profiting from the destruction of your own nation and specifically profiting from the pockets of your neighbors. So that is Levi, who we are going to hear about here in a moment. And then you have the sinners. So we have the Pharisees, professional rule followers. These guys are super duper good. Like legitimately, if you read the Old Testament, they're doing all the rules. Tax collectors who are are serving the occupational army who murdered all of their local people on the backs of their neighbors. And then sinners. Now, we know that we're all sinners. Even the Old Testament Pharisees and teachers of the law would have believed this, right? You have Proverbs 2.9 and Ecclesiastes 7.20, where it's basically all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That no one is good, no, not one, is the Ecclesiastes uh, verse. So they would have agreed with that, but there is like being a sinner and then being like a sinner, right? So some of us sin when we live and some of us live in our sin is the way the Pharisees would have seen it. These people were professional sinners, Okay, uh, and we can actually see the way Jesus handles, like the impact that he had on these individuals. If you go to Luke seven thirty six through thirty eight, right, we have a prostitute who comes in. There is a a teacher of the law that's invited Jesus over, and the guy doesn't wash Jesus's feet, which is uh, par for the course. Everyone, when you have a guest over, you are hospitable and you wash their feet because it's dusty and it's nasty, and their feet are gross, and so you wash them as a sign of of uh, of honor. And this guy doesn't wash Jesus' feet. A prostitute comes in, cries on his feet, smashes a jar of perfume, wipes that all over his feet, and then and then washes it with her hair, right? Like the impact Jesus is having with these individuals is not cursory. It's not just, these are bad people and I'm going to be around them. He loved them and they knew that. Uh, so when we hear sinners, these are these are prostitutes and people who are uh, full-time, their life is in what what God would actually acknowledge is sin, and the Pharisees see that and don't see God's love for them. And that, that well, we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, 
All right, so here's the story. Jesus is eating with Levi, who goes on to be Matthew and write the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, he has a bunch, what is described as a crowd of tax collectors and other sinners, if you read out of uh, Mark for it. Um, so we have the professional sinners, we've got the tax collectors, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees are there, and they're like, oh man, this guy Jesus, why is he doing it? And Jesus hears them, and, and it says he answers them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a physician. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5, 31 and 32. Here's what he's telling them. You have a lot of arrogance. You look at these people and you think, I am better than them, which means you don't know God. You think you're healthy based on your good works and you're not. Now, I'm not just like extending that verse. You're like, well, he didn't say that. He just said, I came here for the sick, not for the well. Uh, But here's actually what he says. So throughout... The, especially the Gospel of Matthew, he goes after the Pharisees. And here's here's just a few. Uh, so these Bible, these teachers of the law, these theologians then um, who are following the rules, they are actually doing good rule following, like as much as an individual can they are. He calls them a brood of vipers in Matthew 12, 34. That's not a compliment. He calls them children of hell in Matthew 23, 15. Blind guides and blind fools in Matthew 23, 16 and 17 whitewashed tombs. And in case you miss the symbolism here, he goes on to explain which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness, Matthew 23, 27. Uh, So, God will not stand for arrogance. When we talk about the gospel eliminates arrogance, it cannot be joined to arrogance. Jesus is exceedingly clear, as I hope you heard there, that there's no place for it in the church, that we're all sinners, we're saved by grace, that Jesus won for us on the cross. If you want to know more about grace, listen to last week's episode. Uh, I tried to kind of go in there, but in doing this, what Jesus is establishing is saying, hey, the church is not a building. It's not the temple. Um, the, the church is a people. They're not perfect, but they're redeemed. They're made right by the blood of Jesus before God the Father. That means only sinners get in. You hear that? Right? Only sinners get in because you have to have a problem so that Jesus can pay for it and redeem it, which means if you're not a sinner, right, if you don't have any problems, then you can't be helped by Jesus. You're you're one of the quote-unquote well that Jesus is actually talking about. Side note, um, once you are with Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you're washed clean, a debt has been paid in full, uh, we immediately get called into full-time kingdom work. So that means... We don't live anymore for our, our money, our house, our pride, our escapism. Our lives are not our own, as, uh, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 6.20. So we're sinners, we're saved by grace, which means we can't be arrogant, which is awesome. But like, all right, so I'm not arrogant because I know I'm a sinner. I don't make excuses and I don't look to how awesome I am and how I'm a victim. Uh, and I know that I'm equally sinful to those around me. I can't be a Pharisee who's doing awesome on my own. I have to have Jesus to be able to have access to the throne room of God. And Jesus is not, he does not uh, pick any bones with that. So uh, the, the what do we do then is that the gospel eliminates arrogance because it demands faith and action. I'm going to read here out of Romans 3, 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been 
manifested apart from the law, right? The righteousness of God is no longer just uh, us striving through the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There was a lot of words, but I wanted to get that whole piece because it starts with the, the law and the prophets. You read the Old Testament, it's all talking about Jesus, a great book as a side note here. If you want to go read the Jesus Storybook Bible, it was written for kids, but it's incredible. The artwork is wonderful. And the the tying in of what the Old Testament is doing, that it's pointing to the redemption of Jesus towards uh, from Jesus by Jesus for the restoration of creation, it does an amazing job for adults and actually for kids. Uh, So what we have here is saying the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Uh, There was a, one more side note, fancy word, propitiation just means satisfaction, to satisfy. So we have sin, which is treason. We talked about that in the previous episode. Uh, It's treason against God. And God looks on Jesus when he sees us when we are covered in Christ. It doesn't mean that you and I earned it. I want to pause right there because there are some uh, Christian believers, there are some people of other faiths who believe God accepts you because you're doing better than others, that you're somehow stacking up, that you're going to make it on a heavenly kickball team. Uh, and that's not the way it works. You are an enemy of God striving in your own effort, which is what the Pharisees were doing, saying, look at me, God, I'm awesome. And he's like, no, you hate me. You have rules that you believe make you awesome and that actually make you hate people that need me. That is not someone who's showing up for the the wedding of Jesus to his bride, the church, uh, and is going to be received well, right? So what do we do then? Okay, well, we have satisfaction in Jesus. Why faith? says it it comes through faith, and we go, all right, every Young Life kid that ever shows up says, how do I know if I'm saved, right? How do I know? Maybe this is a question you have or one of your kids has asked you. How do I know if I'm saved? And you go, well, it's by faith. Like, okay, well, what is faith? And you're like, ah, I don't know. Sometimes it's like a feeling. It's like that thing you know. It's like how we sometimes try to describe love to our kids. Like, it's just, you know, you know when you know, which is a terrible definition. I was definitely in college dating Anna going, I don't know. Like, I, I think I love her. Like, is that, is, do I know? Like, how do you know? <laughs> is there a litmus test? It's not that hard. Uh, on this case, when we talk about faith, It's simply put to this question, do I believe that Jesus gives me my value, my power, and my purpose? Or more simply, do I trust God or myself? It's the question that was extended to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Here's a tree. The tree isn't the point. The point is, do you trust me? Do you have faith in me as your God, or do you have faith in yourself? Our faith is always going to be shown by what we do. Our trust and our belief is in our actions, right? Jesus tells a story to kind of show this. He says, there's two sons. Dad had a vineyard. Dad goes to the first son and say, son, go out into the, uh, go out into the vineyard and do work. And he says, no, I will not go. But later he goes. And the second son, he goes, son, go to the vineyard. And he's like, you got it, dad. And then he doesn't go. <laughs> right. And he goes, all right, who did the will of God? And the people are like, well, the, the son that went and did it. And this is what like every middle schooler knows, right? That our actions, not our words, show what we actually believe. So when we look at the gospel, 
and we say it demands faith and action, that's because we cannot just give what, what we might call lip service. We cannot just give mental assent to, sure, God and stuff. I go to church and I pay my dues. That's got to be good enough. That God does not care about our sacrifices. He does not care about um, the things that we go out of our way to prove that we are somehow super great. What he cares about is the blood of Jesus, right? That was his rescue mission. That was his great plan to redeem us, Genesis 3.15, where he says, we are, I'm going to send one who is going to crush your head, serpent, and you're going to bite his heel, and he is going to redeem mankind, and he's going to be their savior. And we see it through Isaiah and Jeremiah and um, lots, of, lots of awesome Old Testament prophets. Um, by the way, just as a side note, so that story about the two sons, the kicker on that, he's talking to teachers of the law, and he then his, here's his punchline. They go, well, I guess the son that does what God, what the, what the father tells him to, and he goes, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. <laughs> ah, I love that. So just in case you were thinking that Jesus is like that guy that needs a bran muffin because he's low on blood sugar, um, he goes after arrogance. He goes after self-righteousness, and he is not being mean. He is telling them exactly what is true. If you keep trusting in yourself, the gospel has no impact for you. It can't save you if you put your faith in your kingdom and your effort. And friends, that's what we need to hear, right? The gospel impacts us because we need to know we need a savior. We need to know that that is, um, or that we are sinners that need a savior and that our our faith is going to be shown in action and the why does matter, right? That we need to do it out of the freedom we've been given, that our chains have been broken off and we're not there. If we're not there, we need to repent and ask God to give us the faith to do what we know we need to do and not just white knuckle ourselves there. If you're in a, a season of white knuckling, I would ask you to stop maybe in your car right now and ask God for the faith to acknowledge that you're white knuckling because you can't just go, well, I'm not believing, but if I don't believe, then I don't love God. That's not true. You can actually say like the father who brings his son to Jesus for healing and say, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Acknowledging our unbelief is huge. It's actually an act of faith because by doing that, we are letting God work. When I white knuckle my unbelief and go, well, I just have to believe more. Who's actually drumming up the faith there? I am, right? I've got this cover, God. I don't need you. And that's why prayer and repentance and all these wonderful things are faith and action. Our faith and action isn't just go out and serve the poor. That is part of it. But there are a lot of us that when we serve the poor, we do it self-righteously so that we can say, see how good I am? Look at that. We need to serve the poor because we recognize our poverty in our spirit that has been made rich because of Jesus. And we go and serve the physically poor because Jesus loves them too. And our service is going to be an example of the gospel that we may or may not get to actually share in that event um, for God's kingdom and these people that he loves deeply. Um, so I just wanted to bring that in that uh, if, I guess I'll, I'll end it with this. Jesus in no uncertain terms hates self-improvement for the sake of self-improvement himself or itself. Uh, he celebrates and empowers change. So by saying he hates self-improvement for the sake of self-improvement, I'm not saying we're not going to improve, but our improvement has only one metric we're being gauged by, and that's looking like Jesus. So if I look at my life and go, man, I'm doing awesome and God's proud of me because look at all this good stuff I've done. That's that's not right, right? He wants you to improve and to look more like 
Jesus. And that is why God, uh, we're told in Romans that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. So looking like a better ver- version of yourself or myself is not actually improvement, it's enslavement. It's effort. It's the definition of sin. It is having a kingdom apart from Christ, and it is nothing that it has to do with the gospel. So the gospel is going to um, kind of step right into that and say, hey, arrogance has no place here. Uh, if we needed to apply that, here's what we could do. We could, put your, we could put our phones away, try this maybe this week, for 24 hours. right? Warn people beforehand, put an out of office or whatever you got to do, pick a Saturday, do whatever it is. But every time you come into a, a, a flicker of a moment of like, oh, I've got a down second, I should check that. Or I wonder that one fun fact about that movie we were talking about, and you don't go check it, you're going to be annoyed. You're going to find it inconvenient, it's just 24 hours. And part of that tech is, it's so self-enabling. I can actually distract myself to such an extent that I don't have to recognize the other stuff in my life that's going on or how dissatisfied I am with certain parts of my life. And it's not I'm not saying just go be satisfied. I'm saying take your dissatisfaction to the source of satisfaction, to the to the victory and the satisfaction that's been won in Jesus, and that that prayer and that finding God in Scripture is real. It's not just self-improvement, and it's not um, like hokey positivity stuff, uh, which brings us to our third piece. So if our faith is in action and we're showing what we believe by what we do, the gospel doesn't allow us to be arrogant because it makes a really clean line between conviction and condemnation. So, um, oh man, this is, this is big, but I did, I wanted to throw this in on this one. So I'll, I'll just address it like this. Uh, it eliminates our ability to hate those who sin. When the Pharisees looked at those professional sinners, they saw people who sinned and they were accurate. Jesus agreed with that. Their reaction was, I'm awesome. Those people are terrible. If they were more like me, they'd be more deserving of God. Instead, Jesus goes, no, they're terrible. They absolutely need God. You guys are terrible too, but you think you're awesome and there's no place for that in the kingdom of God. Um, so we know that we love because he, God, first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. You can't look at a headline now and say, I would never do that, or man, I'm glad I'm better than that person, right? Most of our news consumption and our internet actually interaction with others is based on I'm good and they're bad, right? Um, so we need to recognize that that us-them language is not healthy, but we also need to push back against this idea that, so that would be that would be a condemnation, right? That's, I'm condemning you because I'm better. Condemnation has to do with a, oh, excuse me, with a status piece, right? I'm good, you're bad, I'm high, you're low. Um, it's, it's judgy. But then on the flip side, you're gonna have people who say, well, all right, let he who is out without sin throw the first stone, or do not judge lest you be judged, Matthew 7, 1, right? We hear, we hear those a lot, but those are erroneously applied. The line between conviction and condemnation is how we go about speaking truth in love, right? Uh, so to, to, I guess here, we, we end that piece with, when we talk about um, Jesus with the woman uh, who's caught in adultery, right? And he says, uh, he, he draws in and says, do not throw the, the if, excuse me, whoa. All right, people, let's try this again. The argument for let those who are without sin throw the first stone. You're going to hear this a lot of like, well, you can't call people on their sin because that's judging them. Um, that's not entirely true. Uh, what Jesus is actually doing is he doodles in the dirt and says, if you have no sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And they don't. And he tells the woman where they go. And she says, they're, they're not here anymore. And he said, well, I'm not judging you either. Go and sin no more, which by a frequent definition would mean that 
he considers that sin, right? So he acknowledges you were sinning, but you are not a sinner with your faith in me, right? And you can be made into a new creation. Uh, people will point out the first take the plank out of your own eye so you can see clearly and, and, and the speck from your brothers. This is the second part. Uh, so this is Matthew 7, 5 here. Um, so don't judge lest you be judged. Goes on to talk about um, uh, judging is when you still have the plank in your eye. So if I'm going to get the speck out of my brother's eye, I have to remove the plank, which we do by repentance and prayer and even fasting to help ourselves uh, hear the will of God and, and acknowledge our brokenness. But you actually still go back and it says, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The reason that these are not uh, condemnation is because these are done in relationship. These are done in love uh, and love being pointing towards the greatest good, which is God. So not telling someone that they're in sin in a relationship, not shouting it at them over the internet, but not telling sin is like a doctor not giving a diagnosis for a curable disease because the doctor has a cold, right? Being like, well, I'm, I'm a sinner, so who am I to point out this problem you have? Be like, well, I'm under the weather, I've got a bit of a sniffles, so I couldn't possibly tell you about this terrible disease you have, but it's totally curable if we just took action, right? Like, that, it's illogical. So we know that sin is a spiritual disease that is killing us, and we have to let people we love know about that, and we're supposed to love even our enemies. It's unloving to keep that information to yourself. Uh, this is why James, brother of Jesus, reminds us that whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins, James 5.20. And Paul encourages the same thing to the Galatians. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, Galatians 6.1. This is an in-house conversation. So the gospel does not let us be arrogant because it does not let us condemn people. It allows us to lovingly bring conviction, right? We do not do this over the internet to strangers. We do not shout on the street at them. We proclaim the good news to people who don't know Jesus. That includes the bad news that they are sinners, but we don't just go yell at them and rant and rave about how they're doing wrong stuff because let's say that person just dropped it, right? Let's say they're like, oh man, okay, like what I'm doing here is bad. I stop and they walk away. They're not loving Jesus. They're still going to hell. <laughs> like that's really important. So when you and I struggle with ongoing sin, the point isn't just stop the sin. The point is love God so much that it exposes the sin for what it is, a complete lie, a waste of your spiritual purpose, and a complete distraction from the only source of good that actually exists in your life. That is what we want these people to know. We want them to meet Jesus. We don't just want them to follow a bunch of rules and become more like us. We want them to become more like Christ. So this is why we can't be arrogant. In fact, a good dose of repentance and others praying for you goes a long ways in helping us recognize our own sin. Um, and in loving others by pointing them to Christ, we push ourselves to a point where we are then forced to recognize our own need. We cannot in humility help a brother or a sister recognize where they are not loving others well and representing the gospel of repentance and faith in action of a God who's died for their sins so that they can go and love other sinners and still claim our sins and say, yeah, yeah, totally. I need to call you out on that, but here's how I'm awesome. Like this is the, this is the church, right? The body of Christ is walking out in humility 
our own brokenness so that we can point back to the God who gives us wholeness. So let's connect all of that that we just covered to our technology. In our technology, it's often a place of pride. It's MySpace. It's my, well, there used to be something actually called MySpace, wasn't there? But it's my time. It's it's something I've earned. It's not bad. I get to do what I want. And a lot of the language and a lot of the ideas we gain um, for why we use our technologies, because, well, it's my kingdom and I want to live this and I need this because I earned it because I've done a good job today or this week or whatever, and I'm not hurting anyone. And and really a lot of that is, man, I need to I need to have my heart called out by the gospel and say, man, I, Lord, am I trusting you with this? Uh, am, I, am I using this free time to actually escape because I'm dissatisfied with life? Or am I using it to to gain life and to have joy and to enjoy it, right? The, the story of shows and video games and social media and all that can be incredibly powerful and positive. And yet, <laughs> maybe that's not how you and I are using it. And so we first apply that to our own lives. We remove the plank. And then we look at the people around us and we say, man, are my kids growing more like Jesus? Or are they getting distracted and angry and hurtful and anxious? And are, are we seeing fruits that aren't of the spirit in there. And so we go lovingly. We do not condemn them and go, get off your phone because that's ruining you, right? We don't do that. We come in with conviction and say, I love you. And I know that you are created with a purpose. And I see this as distracting you from that purpose. See, that gives us this common ground because you are also a sinner created in uh, the image of God. And now saved for a purpose. And you can point to your testimony and your purpose and uh, what you are seeing happen. So we now have that common ground. It no longer has to be condemnation where you're right and someone else is wrong, where I know good and that person doesn't. And once I step in, then things will be great. So then we can't be arrogant, right? Because it's not on us. So where is arrogance? It's non-existent because we are dead at the feet of Christ, brought to life, um, by his love and his grace and uh, through the good news of the gospel that we now get to proclaim that it's not you and me digging really deep and impressing God. It's God loving us even though he's super unimpressed and saying, I love you enough to not watch this happen anymore. I'm going to send my own son in your place so that you can be reunited. And at that point, right, we get an opportunity to choose our own kingdom or to choose his, right? And that's a daily choosing. And that's it, there, there's more we could go into, but I have gone way beyond what I promised, so I'll just end there. This idea that our technology absolutely is a reflection, it's a mirror of where are we with the gospel, and specifically, where are we in our humility and in our arrogance? Let's be intentional with the way we use social media, with the way we use our quote-unquote free time, with the way we use um, our discretionary attention that we get in a day, uh, and how we spend that, and then how we encourage and challenge others. So uh, I hope this was encouraging to you. I hope that uh, as you have listened to this, there's some application and some ways that you feel like uh, it could be helpful for you. And we just, I just want to excuse me, remind all of us of what we remember. The, The gospel eliminates arrogance because it proves we need a savior. It demands our faith in action, and it defines the difference between conviction and condemnation, that there is the, the that Christ is full of grace and truth, as John says in John 1, uh, and we want to remember that, right? That it's grace and truth. It's not just truth bombing people, uh, that even when he was super harsh on the, on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it was out of love. Like, he's speaking truth. He's not just mic dropping them. He is actually helping them recognize that he is the Savior. And we see some, right? We see uh, some of the leaders of the law come and and 
ask him more questions. And uh, Nicodemus being one of those, right? Uh, who ends up being someone who buries Jesus, uh, which is a huge statement of faith there at the end. It was later than probably he wishes he would have said something, but uh, but it comes. So we remember that, that it defines the difference between conviction and condemnation. So if this was helpful, would you please uh, share it with someone so that they can be encouraged and they can uh, share that with other people in their lives? Would you uh, leave us a review? Would you uh, go ahead and ask us comments or, or questions if you have any uh, follow-up on any of this? Uh, you can find me, Nathan, at flintandiron.org. Uh, you can follow us at Flint and Iron on Instagram or at Sparking Purpose on Facebook. And uh, I would, I'm really excited for the rest of this little series. I'm going to work super hard to get the next ones shorter. And I appreciate your patience because obviously Anna's not here for uh, to, to look across at me and keep me in line. So <laughs> yeah, I hope it was encouraging and helpful. And I look forward to continuing this conversation as we work to raise kids who love God and use tech. Thanks for listening. We just wanted to take a minute to let you know that just like you and your family, Purposely is also part of a family, the Krista Family of Ministries. Krista helps kids and teens learn and grow in their faith at King Schools and Miracle Ranch Camp. And Krista shares Jesus with people in the poorest, most remote places through world concern. Krista Senior Living is a community of love and care, and Krista Media is a place of hope on the radio. God is changing lives through these five ministries, and Krista is on mission to share the good news of Jesus. To learn more, visit krista.org.